Welcome back to Chit Talk, where we talk about really good shit. My name is Annika. And my name is Rithu. Follow us on our socials, here to Chit Talk and Instagram for sneak previews, audio clips, and more. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. This is a trigger warning for our listeners. This episode will contain discussions of COVID-19, the impacts of the pandemic, such as isolation and grief, and briefly touching on mental health issues. We want to create a safe space for our listeners. So if you are feeling overwhelmed by the news and recent events, or just need a break from all the noise, please feel free to skip this episode. All right, welcome back to another episode of Chit Talk. We're thrilled to announce that we have another special guest joining us this week to discuss the rise of anti-Asian hate crimes that have been reported in recent news and to raise awareness for the rise of xenophobia in North America. Irving Chong, or as you might know him, the Asian Canadian on Instagram, uses his platform to educate and inform others on the plights of the Asian community and creates a safe space to allow for these discussions. Thank you so much for coming on the show this week. Yeah, thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. How did the Asian Canadian start and what inspired you to speak out openly about these issues affecting those Asian identities? Um, I think first was just like taking history and sociology classes at school. And I was fortunate enough to have professors that had a social justice lean or a lens that they explored these topics as well as the classes themselves. And then for the Instagram page, Asian Canadian in particular, I read both of Eddie Wong's books. So Fresh Off the Boat and Double Cup of Glove. And I felt like that was the first time I felt myself reflected in any form of any media. And I was just like, is there a Canadian version of this? Because I could have used this when I was like 12 instead of in my 20s, even though it was helpful now. But things I feel like are more impactful when you're, especially when you're a kid, right? And I Googled just like off the top of my head, like the Asian Canadian, nothing really came up. So I said, well, this is a good name just to have. So I just signed that up to like every social media thing. Good call. Yeah. (laughs) Good way to lock everything down. Yeah. (laughs) And it's not that I think I speak for all Asian Canadians or really any other Asian Canadian besides myself. It's a good name. So, you know, as someone that works so actively in social media, like I follow you on Twitter, you have Instagram. And Mm -hmm. so you know, do you believe that in this new age that we live in, that social media is actually a benefit or a detriment to the social media, like the social activism space? Do you think that it helps or that it's actually hurts the progress of these movements? I think like with so many things, it's both. Mm-hmm. Overall, I think I'd argue that the internet itself is probably a ne- negative. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Totally feeling that. Um, However, I would say for people to be able to connect with other like-minded people or have a support system that they might not mm-hmm. have, like in their immediate circle or where they live, it's a good place to find that support. For me personally, I don't think like arguing on the internet or trying to change people's minds through like either an Instagram post or a tweet is very productive mm-hmm. just because I don't think with social media it's not conducive to nuance Mm -hmm. 
and I don't think any of like the big picture problems of our society can be solved without that. And for people who like need support that they're not getting in their immediate, I think social media is great yeah. for finding that. I also don't know if that by itself is enough to solve our problems. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I am totally, I had, Anakin and I actually had a discussion about this a while back where we were talking about, at least with like, you know, Black Lives Matter when the death of George Floyd happened, mm-hmm. you know, everyone was constantly on social media posting mm-hmm. a black square or like doing something, reposting something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the discussion of performative allyship came up. And so social media is like rife with people that are just performative. Mm-hmm. Right? Totally. So what are, what are ways that you think that you can set yourself apart as a person that's ally, that is an ally to the cause, right? What are ways that we can use social media to actually empower and uplift those people that are marginalized? I think one of the first things allies can do is recognize that whatever they claim allyship over, at the end of the day, it's not about them. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easy for people to like, share a post or something and be like, I'm this, just like proves them. I'm, I'm an ally. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes it's easy to get caught up in social media. Sometimes like, I know I do that. I'll get worked up over something and then I'll say the thing out loud <laughs> and then realize like, Oh, this literally doesn't matter <laughs> outside of the scope of, of like the tweeted existence. And I also feel like, For like allyship, it's a lot, it's great if you're like posting something and sharing something, but if you're unequipped to have like real discussions with people in your orbit who might be hesitant to adopt these ideas or are hesitant to speak out, then it's like, okay, that's work that you can do that maybe people in like the community you call yourself an ally to won't have the opportunity or the space to talk to those people. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like with social media, you know, we get so caught up with it and caught up in it. Um, sorry. And, um, you know, like I've noticed for Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. movement last year, you know, there were so many people just sharing um, ways that we can support um, the movements and mm-hmm. how we can go out to protest and how we can donate. And, you know, we we're sharing resources mm-hmm. and educating people. But I noticed that there was a slight difference with um just the way people responded or you know even the lack of response Mm -hmm. for anti-asian hate crimes and i i think you know me and ruthu noticed the silence that was there and just the lack of um i guess people sharing Mm -hmm. the same just having the same effort in um just talking about vocal yeah yeah just being vocal about how they feel mm-hmm. you know their sentiments and just sharing those same resources and and raising awareness like there was a distinct difference between the two mm-hmm. um have, i don't know have you noticed that as well and like how does that make you feel i mean i feel like well the reality of it is that racism isn't just a broad brush that you can apply to like every different situation or mm-hmm. with every different community or a group of people or even like geographically like the needs of like Asians like here in Vancouver versus like an Asian community in like say Calgary or like Toronto right and I think 
that just because you don't have like a lot of prominent voices or like quote unquote important ones or like ones with like big platforms that doesn't diminish the work of less prominent ones mm-hmm. right and I feel like because one of the things that frustrated me after what happened after the tragedy and murders in Atlanta was that you could see that mainstream like western culture doesn't know how to talk about racism in regards to um Asians and just a lack of not only nuance but just general lack of understanding mm-hmm. was kind of laughable and it's highlighted the fact just how accepted or invisible everyday anti-Asian racism really is. Yeah, definitely. The amount of times I've heard in passing just people being like, oh, well, like, it's not the same or like, it isn't the same type of thing. And I'm like, I don't know how much more clear this can be. Like, it's- Well, because like, the thing is, you can't compare- it's impossible to compare pain. Yes, definitely. And you shouldn't yeah. either. And like, yeah. you know, racism is racism mm-hmm. and racism is terrible in all sense of the word. Yeah. And it's just, it's not great. And obviously everyone is affected by racism differently. You know, mm-hmm. um, some people have more privilege than others. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a very tricky situation, but, you know, it's, it's more of a humanitarian issue than it is like a person to person one. It's just, it's entirely it's just it's a systemic issue that's right absolutely Absolutely. that does encapsulate like one-on-one interaction yes but the core of it is it's built into this continent yeah and so I just want to you know go back a little bit and talk about how you know with the pandemic and COVID-19 how this has really propelled the anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic, and xenophobic conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. And that's just really risen so much in the past year with the pandemic um, affecting all of us. And so what factors have caused a sudden surge in xenophobia and racism since the start of the pandemic? Me personally, I would say like the racism, like the level of it's probably the same. Mm. What's happened is like the escalation of violence especially right. towards mm-hmm. anyone who looks remotely East Asian, which is weird, but that's neither here nor there because racists don't care if they have the quote-unquote right Asian. Yeah, And I feel like the pandemic has heightened, even though the messaging from people in power are like, oh, we're all in this together. But the reality is the pandemic has shown us that, oh, it doesn't like bring people together. It actually just highlights the divisions already set in place in an unequal uh, system right Mm -hmm. and I think that those insecurities heightened and escalated the ideas that already were there the ideas that like oh immigrants are coming to take your jobs oh rich Chinese people are buying property and just like staying here for a couple months and then like abandoning it for like the rest of the year Mm -hmm. and also just a lack of financial security as well also heightens that as we see like you know, historical examples or comparison would be the riots that burned down Chinatown here in Vancouver in like 1907 mm-hmm. that was fueled mainly by the idea that Chinese and Japanese and other Asiatic communities are coming here and taking jobs from like white men right and I also feel like a lot of 
the protests that happened over the summer for Black Lives Matter. Um, one of the factors was that we were in like lockdown basically. So people didn't have to be at work <laughs> and they had time to like show up and put like their bodies in front of this movement, right? And mm -hmm. I think the opposite has also happened. It, it sounds weird to say double down on like mm -hmm. the racism, but like that's mm -hmm. kind of what's happened, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, that actually makes me think about something my dad said, um, and this was in relation to when Donald Trump got elected. Mm -hmm. And um, my dad actually, he was like, you know what? I'm kind of glad Donald Trump got elected. And I was like, how can you say that? Right. Like, how can you how can you possibly say that? And my dad said, now race, racists can't hide in plain sight. They mm. just feel emboldened and empowered to come out and like just be who they are and put their racism front and center mm -hmm. like where they are and i was like dad i think you might be a genius <laughs> like i i i i like waver on my feeling about like do i want racists just to be like racist or do i want them just to like i don't know like the canadian version of racism where yeah. it's like a polite politer version of what <laughs> we see in like the states right mm -hmm. yeah and we just like don't really hear about it as well. Like to be quite frank, living in Singapore my entire life, you know, I only learned history from North America being the States, right? Mm. Or from Europe as well with the Holocaust and all these sorts of things. But coming to Canada, I don't realize that it has so much like rich history and how much suppression and discrimination it had with just the indigenous people here as well. So mm. racism comes in all sorts of forms and I think it's just the silencing that, um, I guess, to your point of Canada being very polite about the racism, it's just a little bit of that. But um, Oh, no, Canada has a very good like PR team of the country that it aspires to be and the mm -hmm. one that it sells to the rest of the world. Yeah, 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 definitely. And just to go back to your point about like anti-immigrants as well, I just got my PR um, mm -hmm. here in Canada. So I'm from Singapore and I've lived here for about coming to eight years now, I think. And so, you know, I went to UBC, that's how I met Rithu and then mm -hmm. um, started a job, also worked with Rithu. I can't seem to get away from her <laughs> for some weird reason. <laughs> she just seems to stick around like a leech, but you know, <laughs> but in my previous job, it was just, I, I loved all the experiences that I received from mm -hmm. my previous job. And, um, you know, I got to work with very special people like Rithu, but I, I also felt like it was a very toxic environment. And mm -hmm. so I had the privilege of going to LA to write pilots and to, to just work on music videos and just concept art and, and all these sorts of things as an associate producer. Mm -hmm. But there was another person who worked with us who just felt a little bit inferior to that. And so she called me one day and just said that I was very undeserving for all the opportunities that I received because I'm not from here and I just didn't deserve them. And I was, I was really torn to hear that because I didn't think that that would happen to me. Clearly there was some sort of insecurity issue that was happening. And I, you know, I was just doing my job. I didn't ask to travel. I was just putting my head down grinding. Um, mm. But it was just very, 
I guess it was just, you know, a real wake up call that there's still racism going on even here in Canada too. And it was just very upsetting. And ironically, it was 45 minutes before um, I had to do my Kelpip exam, my English exam <laughs> for my PR in Canada. And I was bawling. I was literally on the phone with her and I like put down the phone. I whipped up the phone again, called Ruthu and I was like bawling, just like, <laughs> you wouldn't believe what happened. And it sucked. It really sucked. But um, I was just wondering if you feel comfortable with sharing um, your experiences, have you or someone that you know faced any discrimination or pandemic related hate during this time? And like, how did this make you feel or how did you approach the situation? I mean, luckily for me, like straight up, I have male privilege. So I don't have, I don't have like the same danger of being out on my own, just like walking around when I do, when I am, or like when I'm getting groceries or just on like my daily walk. So that's a form of protection that I have that we can't really say the same yeah. thing for ourselves. Yeah. No. So, which, which, which is no fault of either of you or no, any no. other like women, right? Yeah. And no, like generally for me and my family, we've been fortunate not to have. I think one, like my cousin and his wife ran into a racist person like at a Safeway, but I don't think that escalated beyond anything besides like a couple of comments. Mm-hmm. And like how it makes me feel, I feel like, I, I'm not sure about YouTube, but I feel like since the pandemic started, even in Asia up until like now, so a year and change of it, it's just been a lot of compound grief Yeah, that I don't think anyone in my circle who's Asians has had like proper time to process. Totally. And I don't even, I don't even think that it's something we can process right now with there being no end in sight for covid i don't Mm -hmm. i feel like a lot of people feel trapped Mm -hmm. and they they feel i even read an article the other day where someone's like all of the grief all of the like pandemic related depressive episodes heartache all of those things that have happened can't really be healed until after after you're out of it yeah And we don't know when we're going to be out of it for a while, but I think it's also just, I don't know if it's from being an international um, student growing up in Singapore, but coming to North America, I, and I guess I just didn't realize it either, but people would say some microaggressions like, oh, you're so exotic. Like, where are you really from? Oh, Mm -hmm. you're from Singapore. Is that in China? You know, like all these sorts of things. And Mm -hmm. it would just go right like right by me because I just wouldn't really think twice about it and I didn't know how to just sort of pinpoint or identify that that was in fact a racial microaggression so I guess in terms of people saying these things when I go to bars or when I go to restaurants I don't really Mm -hmm. think twice about it just because I'm so desensitized to these small microaggressions and so I don't I don't feel like it really impacts me but that's also like harmful at the same time because it shouldn't have to be that way. Which, which is wild to think because that just means it's so normalized that no one thinks about exactly. it. Totally. Yeah. Um, this actually makes me think about uh, that story about my old workplace um, with one of my coworkers, Annika. You remember? Um, oh, I remember her. I think I think I know who you were talking about. Yeah. So mm. uh, there was someone at my old workplace who basically, if she ever listens to this podcast, she'll know exactly who she is. I don't think but she will. I don't think she will. <laughs> But basically, 
you know, I'm from a certain part of India and her husband is also from that same part of India. Mm-hmm. And so this woman is white and she sometimes would act in a way where it was like, because she married a brown man, she automatically has ownership of that culture. And that's the way she would act. Mm -hmm. And that resulted in a lot of like mini little microaggressions, actually not even microaggressions, just aggression, aggressions, imitations of accents, like, you know, just being diminishing of my language, my, my experience, my language, like, you know, her husband and I, we met for the first time and we were chatting and I don't know if uh, anyone would resonate with this, but I only speak my language with my family. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. unless I need to communicate with someone in my language because they don't understand English, I will use my language, my knowledge of all the languages at that point. But my comfort is speaking in English. So when I met her husband for the first time, I was like, hey, I hope you don't mind. Like, I don't really want to speak in my language because I feel like I don't know you very well and I would rather speak in English. And he's like, oh no, I totally get it. I'm the same way. Later when she comes by, she says something to the regard of, oh, did you and so, so and so like speak in the light, in your language. And then she proceeds to imitate it. And I'm just like, bro, for real? (laughs) what what is happening so like this is how like overarching white supremacy is here that like she has the audacity to ask you did you speak in like your language but like you would never go up to two white people and ask them like oh did you speak in like your language yeah and like think that like you're referring to english right yeah Yeah. did you speak in your uh dialect of english (laughs) with the scottish accent or the australian one right like that's not a discussion that's and, and so, you know, th- there were multiple incidents where um, she had done something like that. And an example was we were all drinking at our work Christmas party. And there was uh, one of my coworkers who is like an immigrant from India. He has his PR here. So he has a very thick accent, right? He's the funniest person I've ever met. And he's so funny, especially when he drinks. So, you know, everyone was just having a good time. And she came up to the same area and he had left and she was imitating him to everyone and the the amount of like sheer exhaustion I felt in like having to stand up for myself and for him was just it was just too much and then the next day uh we were at lunch and Mm. you know we were all chatting and so one of my coworkers says hey so that thing happened last night and we weren't sure how to deal with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they were like, we didn't know if we should step in, if that was speaking for you, if that was speaking over you, like, and they're all white cis men. And it's like, so, no, please speak up. Yeah. And, and I literally, I literally was like, I was like, guys, it does not f-ing matter. It doesn't matter. Like, this happens to me so much that it just washes over me it's just like another thing that happens Mm -hmm. and I don't I'm like okay well it happened meanwhile other people are uncomfortable and they know exactly why and they 
feel like they, it's not their place to talk about it. It's the bystander like, effects. Yeah, like people it's just crazy. stand there, but they don't step in. And like, I'm already getting like second degree embarrassment for her for trying to like <laughs> imitate like your language or even saying that was just, uh, that makes me very uncomfortable. But I just wish other people felt empowered to just, you know, jump in or say something, even though it might make them feel uncomfortable. Like I feel like I want people to just be empowered to be uncomfortable sometimes, you know? So like that, that story highlights one of the things I've found annoying in the past couple of months, especially with, I don't know how you two feel about the hashtag stop Asian hate. Um, personally, I'm annoyed by it. Okay. Well, I just, don't, I mean, like we don't really engage with it too much aside from like maybe seeing it reposting a couple mm -hmm. of like yeah. infographics on chit talks yeah. instagram yeah. but we don't really engage with it Be, too much ju just because that type of like aggression and racism you felt from that white coworker, right doesn't fall under the label of hate really yeah i guess right yeah so for me the annoyance just comes from that like racism isn't just purely like do you hate or do you love someone right mm -hmm. you you could you could marry someone that's not white and still be tremendously racist yep i guess like community right yeah yep. it doesn't make sense and you're totally right when you say that even though they if they have a partner or a girlfriend or boyfriend that is of another race and they're in internet um international relationship <laughs> Inter <laughs> Inter, oh my gosh, I'm interracial like, relationship. Interracial. I've got a huge brain fart, you guys. I'm sorry. Okay. Interracial relationship. They can still be racist. Yeah, no, when people are like, oh, I have a black friend, that's the same argument. It's the same. It's yeah. like, oh, this is my black friend card. This is my Asian friend card. No, it's like, no, you know an Asian person. Yeah. Yeah. Like, don't <laughs> yeah. use us as a token. Don't use us token, like as a token it's, brown it's, friend. Like, no. It's the same excuse. It's the same, like game plan that um misogynists use when they're like oh i'm not sexist i have like a sister i have a wife i have like a daughter yeah right exactly exactly You know, the media has often depicted Asians in a very demeaning manner mm -hmm. in movies and films and, and songs sometimes too. Um, what are some of the long-term consequences of the damage that this does to the self-image of the AAPI youth? I mean, it teaches that um, you're not like a fully formed person, you're a caricature. Mm. It puts a ceiling on how you exist in the world and how you exist in certain spaces. Yeah, definitely. And I remember, you know, I'm so fond of Audrey Hepburn. And I remember mm -hmm. when I was in my, back in high school, I watched Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, a very iconic mm -hmm. movie, loved it. And the entire beginning bit threw me off because there was a white man who was playing an Asian person. And I was like, yeah. hang on, I don't recall this in the movie. Like, where's Audrey? <laughs> you must like, have just Audrey blocked Hell. it out. <laughs> I, clearly, I blocked it out. <laughs> But it was just, yeah, it's very bizarre how they, you know, exaggerate features, how they exaggerate the way um, we speak, we talk, um, personality. It's just 
very hyperbolic and it's just it's, also it, it's, it's very one dimensional but it's like that right. happens with um every underrepresented community that's on yeah. screen right like they yeah. over feminize asian men but then mm -hmm. they hypersexualize black men mm -hmm. right and it's just it's, it's just how like the sliders of race work for white supremacy it's like you only can be one thing but if you're white then you can be a fully formed human like mm -hmm. i remember crazy rich asians isn't the perfect movie but mm -hmm. i would say just i loved it just for the fact that it was the first like Hollywood movie I saw that had like super sexy men in it. Oh yeah, tell me about it. Yeah. I had to watch yeah. it twice. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, and then I was like, is this how white people feel? Is this how white men feel after like every Avengers movie? <laughs> With like Probably. all the gorgeous Chris's and they that's why they think they're all hot shit. Maybe. And it's like, and it's like if I had this like 20 times a year, I think I'd feel like the same way too. I know. <laughs> But yeah, no, to your point, they, they depicted, um, Asians, Chinese, Singaporeans, like very beautifully. And I think that in a lot yeah, of like that first shower scene, when it's just like the <laughs> shot of his like riff back, I was like, damn, okay. I know. I was like, damn. Oh, <laughs> give me more of that. <laughs> but yeah, just, it, it's very, it's such a huge juxt juxtaposition to see that and then see previous movies where, you know, they hypersexualize females, like, mm -hmm. you know, whether they're James Bond girls or um, they're, I don't know, in some other TV shows where like, they're, they're, the they're talking for totally whatever yeah. white character needs development for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's just, I and think we need to like switch gears and, and teach younger young females young males that we're just not like a, we're not a stereotype we're not just a character that's just you know got hyperbolic features or or that well i mean to TV. like fragment yourselves in such a way in order to fit in yeah it's like that that is an act of violence and like i grew up in calgary alberta so i had like maybe like i could count the like on one hand like the number of like asian kids i had from like grade one through like grade 12. Wow. And it's just like, yeah, that obviously sucks. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I can't just be like, I'm upset with like the friend group I have during grade school. I can't like go find a new one or open yeah. <laughs> up a new one as if like they're a pack of like training cards, right? And it's just like, yo, sometimes in order to survive, you this is the stuff you, you need to do. Yeah. And I, I just want to touch on the previous point as well. How in your in your thoughts in your mind how has pop culture hypersexualized and fetishized females in modern day media asian females it's asian just... females yes i've got a few examples that i'd like to talk about I mean, like, <laughs> i'll let you go first <laughs> i mean i'm sure you two could speak on it more than me just because you have to live with the consequences of it more so mm. than i do but just from like a thing that i've seen that annoys me to no end is when Asian men like comment on the relationship of like an Asian woman if they're dating like a white man and they call them like race traitors or that they're they're like perpetuating like white supremacy uh, they're somehow hurting Asian men even though like your romantic relationship is nobody's business besides like the two people and like whoever they like include and ask for like their opinion on those things yeah and one question I always have for like these dudes who get mad at like these Asian girls dating white men 
like what's the end goal here are you going to date like every single of like these asian women yourself so i find i find i like i understand where that trash idea comes from it's jealousy mm -hmm. just from seeing like asian women be desirable versus like again over feminized and emasculated like portrayals of asian men and us not seen as desirable under like western standards of beauty yeah i think like also females are always oh, females I mean, asian females are always seen as submissive or they're meant mm -hmm. to be silenced or quiet and stuff and i read this really interesting thing that a friend posted um during just you know the the peak and the rise of the anti-asian hate crimes but she posted something that really like struck a chord with me but she said if your ethnicity is not a category on Pornhub, then you have privilege. Mm -hmm. And I was like, damn, okay, that's, you know, <laughs> that's heavy, but funny at the same time, but it's just <laughs> really struck a chord with me. And I was like, damn, that's, that speaks volumes. Right. It's like you're a fetish instead of a fully yeah. formed human, right? Yeah. yeah. I just objectified completely. And it's just so demeaning, but it's, mm -hmm. it's true, unfortunately. Yeah. The, the amount of times I've, I've thought, or at least it's been like in the forefront of my mind when it comes to dating. And Annika, maybe you, you can speak to this too, but like whether or not certain people are dating me or like are interacting with me because of my race mm -hmm. or this is the problems with dating just white men is some of them <laughs> will be like, oh, have you ever dated a white guy before? And I'm like, yes, you bland wheat man. Of course, I've dated white men before. It just makes you feel small. It makes you feel like an mm -hmm. object, even more so because women are already objectified. But with the lens of being an Asian woman, it just makes you, I don't know what even more of an object would be, but that's how it feels. No, but like those questions show that like they don't actually care about you like they exactly. could just swap you out with any other like asian girl yeah yeah and just like not notice the difference as long as you're submissive and like keep your head down and aren't loud and like fit whatever fantasy books like idea of an asian woman they have in their head yeah or they or they just want to try something new you know they're like oh like i've never dated a brown girl i've never dated you know an asian girl before mm -hmm. like oh i wonder what that's like and they just go with that mindset just being like oh I need to tick this off my list you know yeah it's not it's not no it's cool. gross <laughs> it's gross no it's disgusting yeah. actually not too long ago but about a year ago I when I was with my previous job it was all remote and so sometimes I would go to the Starbucks nearby me so I actually live in Olympic Village and sometimes I would just go to the Starbucks and mm -hmm. just grab a, a cup of coffee sit down and you know mind my own business, just you know, tune out and then just do some editing and do some work and stuff. And then a couple of times I would see this guy sit next to me and, you know, I thought, okay, whatever. It's a neighborhood Starbucks, whatever. You know, he's started a conversation with me. I'm just being polite and courteous. I'll, I'll respond. I'll talk back. And so he started talking about how he just got a new car and how he's buying a new house and kits. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's quite a lot of money. What, what do you do just out of pure curiosity? And he says, well, um, I manage my wife's account and she does photo shoots and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's, that's fantastic. Um, and he was saying how she just came back from Las Vegas and she was doing all these shoots. And then he goes, do you know OnlyFans? And I was like, ah, 
yes, I've heard of it. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) And so he's just saying how, you know, he makes so much money off of just exploiting his wife, frankly. And later I find out that she's Filipino. And so he manages her accounts, her finances and everything on OnlyFans. And then he turns to me while I'm just sitting there, just trying to do my work at Starbucks in broad daylight around 2 p.m. in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And he goes, you know what? You would make so much money. You would make so much more money than your job right now. You'd be so successful because of how you look. And I was, I was flabbergasted. I was very embarrassed. I literally just like my face just glowed red. I, I had to pack up my things and leave. I was just so uncomfortable. And obviously I didn't understand what happened, obviously, um, until much later when I spoke to my boyfriend about it and he was like, you know, that's kind of up. So, you know, just racism is all around us and just the way that white men just hypersexualize and fetishize females really sucks it's not (laughs) only like the level of fetishization in that story it's the level of entitlement oh yes and like the encroachment of like just your own agency over your own body Mm -hmm. yeah and he was like oh what if I like mad at he was just trying to pimp me out it was just very bizarre um I'm sorry to my parents listening to this this is probably the first time they're hearing about this but (laughs) you know, this happened, surprise. Um, but I, I don't feel comfortable to go to my neighborhood Starbucks anymore. And mm-hmm. I don't feel comfortable to go alone as a young female without like a friend or my boyfriend joining me just because mm-hmm. I'm worried that I'm going to see him again. And it makes me uncomfortable and scared. And I feel like that's not right. That's not the way that we should feel. Yeah. That's, that's all I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> the end. <laughs> no, I think that that highlights a certain thing that sometimes I think people forget when they talk about big ideas around race is that there's levels to it and it's like Mm -hmm. that story would literally never happen to me just based on my male privilege and like my gender and it's like we can't disconnect all of the intersections that each individual person has when talking about systemic um, oppression Mm -hmm. I think one of the things to also realize is that like me being near death or me being attacked as an Asian person shouldn't be what you consider racism. Like that's, that's where you draw the line. Mm -hmm. Right. No, like, like we were talking about earlier, like why isn't, why doesn't it feel like there's the big groundswell of support, even though there's plenty of support for our communities from, every other community is just like how like when things happen when state violence is enacted upon other oppressed and marginalized and underserved communities like we speak up for them too or like certain people from our communities also speak up for them and it's like the idea of like oh you don't have it as bad as like x group yeah frankly that's a way of distraction by like white supremacy so they don't have to deal with that problem (laughs) To add to that, actually, I remembered hearing this from someone and I can't, um, I can't actually, I think it was in response to, you know, people from people from black communities being Mm -hmm. like, oh, this anti-Asian hate isn't, is taking away from Black Lives Matter. And then Asian, the Asian community being like, black people aren't supporting us. And then they're being like, distress amongst the two groups coexisting in their own individual like social activist movements Mm -hmm. and what 
what someone said was it has been systemically white supremacy has been trying to pit people of color and marginalized people against each other for its own gain. So instead of fighting with each other, work together to fight against Mm -hmm. the institution that is white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you got a point. Right, because like if you're saying you're anti-racist, you don't get to pick and choose. Yeah, no. When you show up, right? And so, uh, you know, that's a great way to segue into just talking a bit more about how how we can just support and hold space for one another as, you know, people of color, whether Black, Indigenous, or Asian, or any other marginalized group, how can we hold space and support each other during times like this, or just in general? Hmm. Okay, so like I, I don't have like one like nice neat answer. Of course, <laughs> no, and okay. it doesn't have to be. But um, I guess the best answer I can think of right now is just understand that like activism isn't just one thing. It's not just like posting posting on social media. It's not just donating. It's not just like showing up to a protest. It's not just sending emails to your representatives. It's like all of these things. And not everyone, like no one person is physically capable or creative or imaginative enough to single-handedly solve all these problems or understand every nuance or every angle or think for every other person in that community. It's just impossible. Yeah. And I think, Wouldn't that be the dream if someone right? could? <laughs> so I would say what can people do is like figure out what you personally can do, whether that's emailing your representative about these crimes or like crimes against other marginalized communities. Like sure, posting and amplifying voices on social media is great. Having conversations with like family members who might not get it or like who have questions that you feel like you're comfortable with answering or like just holding space for your friends and family who just might be like, yo, I need someone to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. Just make sure you're doing something like at least like every day, I guess, just because like activism, it's like a muscle that you need to practice and you need to work on. Yeah. Like, like I know you guys asked me to like to do this episode to talk about these things just because of like, the things I post now on my Instagram page, but it took me like a solid year to figure out what that path for that page to be, what it is now. And it's not like it's stagnant. Like it might change. I don't know. I might feel differently in five years. Yeah. Right. And and hopefully uh, I should, because if I don't grow and like have no ideas, then like, what am I doing? Yeah, that's actually a great, you know, lead up into the next question, which is, you know, what are you learning and unlearning about yourself and your perceptions on anti-Asian racism over the last little bit with all of these news events, all of these, you know, horrible attacks happening? What are you learning and growing? How are you growing? Um, I think one of the things I've realized is just how unequipped and like purposely unequipped P- 
people are talking about these things. And it's like, for me personally, it's like I'm beyond like these op-eds and like these stories from celebrities sharing like how they're bullied for like bringing a funky lunch during elementary school. And I'm sure like that's great for people who are just like new to this and like just finding someone to identify with. Like that's great important. I'm not trying to say that's not. For me, it's just like, okay, how does a sustainable movement like continue that's beyond all of the grassroots communities in like every major city in North America, who I'm sure has like a good Asian like association for that particular thing or multiple ones that are doing good work and have been good doing good work and will continue to be doing the work. And it's just like, okay, for me and like my stage, it's like, okay, so we're good. Like my Instagram page is called the Asian Canadian. Like my identity is like out there already. Like it's on the page. So I don't need to like focus my work on that. It's more so how can I move towards utility and what's like how that can actually change things, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, Rithu and, and Irving, but I feel like during this time, um, more so than ever, I think I'm learning to be like more patient with myself and just learning how to be an active listener, especially to those who are you know, dealing with family members who, you know, are Asian, but they're also worried for them and worried for their safety and um, just, you know, allowing for a safe space for them just so they can come and, and just talk and just vent a little bit as well. Um, what my work has done is create a Slack channel and it's called the, um, <laughs> I didn't name it, someone else did. It's called the Illuminati. <laughs> like yellow but illuminati anyways so it's it's a space for um all of our asian females in our work to just you know vent talk about our feelings our emotions just talk about the different experiences that we've had uh, whether it's dealing with uh, a partner's racist family a lot of different things and then my story about how this guy approached me at starbucks it's just a lot of different things but it's just learning that other people have different experiences and just knowing to be patient with yourself and to just be more aware of other people's experiences at the same time, because everyone has different experiences and different forms of racism as well that have been inflicted on them. Yeah, I think it's important to note that like when we talk about anti-Asian racism, it's Asia is a massive continent that doesn't have a country, a language, a religion, or a culture has many <laughs> that like ties it all together as one landmass despite i don't know white media will <laughs> make you believe that it's just china south korea and japan mm-hmm. which is not right so i think a lot of what's being done and people finding their voices who might be new to this they're discovering that it's like all of us have our own lived experiences and have dealt with like microaggressions and racism and it's like we each have an answer key but they're all different and we need to like make sense of what all of it means mm-hmm. yeah I um I think to to add to that what I've I, what I've been learning I work at a Irving I don't know if you know this but I work at a life coaching company and so a lot of the work that we do is very social justice focused very mm-hmm. dismantling white supremacy like that is the the mission of what we're trying to do as a program, as a company. And so holding space for people that really, really wanted to 
just talk or exist even because for, for some of these people, it just waking up and getting out of bed is difficult on its own amongst all of the grief that they're dealing with. My best friend, like she, her being Vietnamese, like she is so socially active and is constantly, and she, she's in therapy. Like she's sorry to clarify, she is going to school for therapy. Mm -hmm. So she is constantly trying to be the voice for people and try to speak out about these things. And she's just exhausted. And so just even holding space, being there to just let her be who she is, feel everything she's feeling, just let it out. That, that in itself is just accomplishing part of the work that we can do to support other people. Yeah. And I think one of like the key things that is lost in terms of the ideas of like resistance and like liberation is that joy is a part of that process too. Yeah. And just because the world is literally on fire, that doesn't mean you're not allowed to have like little victories or good days mm-hmm. too. Just as we wind down um, towards the end of our episode, I just want to just educate or like help educate and help support the Asian community and just let our listeners know how they can help and support as well. So what are some things that we can do to raise more awareness regarding the uptick in the recent events? Or like, are there any groups or communities locally that we can support for Asian communities? Um, give me one second to look. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, do not have take your time. <laughs> Off the top of my head. Um, like Swan Vancouver, Ray Canary Song, both deal with, well, Swan Vancouver provides like frontline support for like for an abuser alert network. Their outreach program provides healthcare through like the lower mainland and individual supports and advocates to repeal laws like criminalizing immigrant and migrant like sex workers and like publishes educational like literature. Um, Ray Canary Song, I'm sure you've seen or like have heard that name in the wake of the Atlanta shootings. And they offer like language exchange and a mobile like health van for like migrant and immigrant sex workers and is in coalition with like prison police, like abolition groups. Just thought I'd like need to highlight those just because I feel like sex work is still pretty taboo. There's a Chinatown foundation like here in Vancouver. That promote the well-being of like the most in need while preserving like cultural heritage in Chinatown, aka like stop gentrifying <laughs> and like erasing um, Chinatown. In Toronto, I know there's Tea Base, which is which was a cultural space for Chinese creatives or Asian creatives in Chinatown in Toronto. Podcasts to listen to. Um, I like. Yo, is this racist? I'm and made in podcast. I guess like my podcast, which is also currently like on a hiatus, but I'll start posting episodes again like in May. No, <laughs> no, guess. tell, tell, no, us, tell more us more about, about that. It's called Asians in Space, a podcast with big questions, but with like homegrown answers. Okay. I ask big sweeping questions to my guests, such as like, what does like freedom mean to you? Like, what does it look like for you? And then it's just like obviously no one has an answer for that besides it's a like hard one. their own That's like a, personal experience, hard. right? Yeah. 
but like my goal with that is just talking to obviously Asians um, about big idea topics that seem too big to break down, but to do it in so that like related in a way to like their own personal experience. Kind of like with my Instagram page where like I want to take these big ideas that might be locked away behind like academic jargon or whatever, but talk about these things in like my own language so that it becomes more accessible. This past month, I've definitely been tagged in a lot of other pages being like, oh, these are like activists or like people you should like learn from. And I find that kind of uncomfortable for myself just because I don't see myself as an activist just because I don't personally organize anything. Mm -hmm. But it's just like a lot of like the quote unquote activist pages, like people might like expect it's like, oh, like all these nice infographs and such. And then like you come to my page and it's like, oh, I'll post a tweet that I think like you need to like know with like a snarky comment. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't know if I'm like as like applicable to like well-meaning like white ladies as like other ones. No, but but you're keeping it real. You're keeping it real. And I I don't think there's any reason that you should have to censor yourself Mm -hmm. to make others feel comfortable because the whole point of like growth and learning, at least for me, is I know when I'm uncomfortable, I'm doing my most growing mm-hmm. and but my most developing. Growing so, pains. Growing pains, yeah. totally. And no, honestly, change is difficult. Yeah. It is. Yeah. So and I, you know, I would love, I would love to just connect with you on sharing these resources. Like we'll definitely share these resources on Talk when the episode goes live. Yeah, so. I'll send them to you too. Yeah. Yes. That would be so awesome. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time today, Irving. This was awesome. I feel like, you know, I was able to unclench and just like relax a little bit because this is something that's been weighing heavily on both Annika and myself. And we really wanted to have a conversation about it with someone that is trying to have conversations about this with other people. So thank you so much. No, thank you for having me on. And I hope this conversation was not only affirming to you two, but like whoever listens to it can find that same affirmation just because I feel like, I don't know, a month and a bit has gone by and no one's really talking about it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, to your point, I hope that that isn't just, you know, um, a fad or anything like that. Like I still want people to to um embrace the change and just to open the conversation still I mean yeah, no, can talk about this for literally ever and <laughs> <laughs> might do a part two might so. do a part two <laughs> and no always and always always open to talk <laughs> awesome so, shameless yeah. plug time where can people find you so as someone who spends 27 hours a day on social media do not recommend <laughs> <laughs> noted um find me on at the asian canadian spelled the and then ASN Canadian. And then my podcast, which I promise is coming back, is called Asians in Space. And that's just at Asians in Space or wherever you get your podcast, basically. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to it. Yeah. I can't wait to listen to it, actually. Probably going to do that later. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Bye.